Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, glad that you're here. Uh, we're going to be back in Matthew chapter 11, back in our series called The Kingdom. But before we do that, uh, I want to talk to you about baptism. That's something we're going to be doing on April 25th. And baptism is, a, is an outward expression of something that's happened uh, internally. So if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you've accepted his offer of eternal life, you go public with that by, uh, by declaring that by being baptized. That's a sign of identification. It doesn't save you like baptism isn't going to get you into heaven, but it's a sign to the world you're publicly declaring that I have said yes to following Jesus. And so if you haven't done that, or maybe like me, I was sprinkled as a, uh, I was, I think, about one years old and uh, my parents did that. They did that for them. That wasn't for me. This was my decision to identify publicly that I was following Jesus. And so, uh, so if you've never done that as a follower of Jesus, we want to invite you to join us to do that on April 25th. We're going to do it in both the 9 and the 1030 service. So if you want to uh, participate in that or even just want to know more, uh, you can do that through the Church Center app, or you could also do that through our website, generationchurch.org, and look forward to you being a part of that with us on the 25th. Okay, so we're back in Matthew chapter 11. If you haven't been with us for, uh, for the, really the last year and a half, we started this journey about 18 months ago, walking verse by verse through the book of, of Matthew. And um, I enjoy, and I think there's a lot of value in going through books of the Bible verse by verse. We've gone through Ephesians, we've gone through Galatians, we're now uh, slowly rolling through Matthew. And the reason I like it is it gives you an opportunity uh, to dig into an entire passage. It gives you an opportunity to really get the context, not just the, the big picture. Uh, my wife Jennifer and I enjoy doing puzzles, and uh, we're working on a puzzle right now, and so it's springtime, so it's uh, all of the things about spring. So there's like these wagons and watermelon patches, and everything's spring except pollen. So there's no pollen on our puzzle. Uh, except when we do it outside, then it's everywhere. But, um, but so we're working on that, and, and there's kind of the, the big picture. There's, there's water, there's uh, houses with flags on them, and there's all of these, these things, kind of the big picture. And right now we're working on, the section that I'm working on is I've been tasked with uh, wagons and watermelons. So anything that has wagons and watermelons, I can touch. Anything else, I can't. So Right now, I'm focusing on the wagons, and if you've ever done a puzzle, you're looking for a lot of spokes, and so you're looking for any piece that, that has the spokes or any piece that has like any sort of semblance of watermelon colors, and you, know, you kind of put them all together, and then you're, you're, you're kind of piecing them together, but you're really digging into the detail, and if all you do is dig into the detail, you're going to miss the big picture, right? And so for me right now, I'm digging into those details, and all I see is spokes and, uh, and watermelons. And I'm not seeing water. Uh, I'm not seeing all of the all of the other things. And so, so there's a there's a there's a, a great side of the coin of of walking through a passage of scripture and going through it verse by verse, and that you get a chance to see the the deep riches that are found in scripture, things that you ordinarily wouldn't see or notice if you were just kind of grabbing a verse here and a verse there. And uh, and then one of the one of the cautions you have with it though is if you're not careful, you will lose sight of the big picture. You can get so uh, invested in digging through a couple of verses and trying to make sense of, of a sentence or a statement or a couple of verses, and you're trying to make sense of them, but what, what would help a lot is if you just step back and remember the big picture. And so when you think through the book of Matthew, I want you to keep in mind the big picture. Matthew was written to a Jewish audience, and he was writing to establish that Jesus is 
the Messiah, Jesus is the king. He has come to establish this kingdom. The kingdom is the redemptive reign of Christ. And so Matthew is writing to establish that Jesus, in fact, is the guy. And so everything you read throughout the book of Matthew, you always come back to that, you always come back to that truth that Jesus is the king. Jesus has come to establish this kingdom. And that's going to be important when we talk about John the Baptist a little bit this morning and see some of the doubt that he began to experience. You always remember Jesus is the king. Matthew is writing not only to declare that, but is showing that Jesus is in fact established, that he has the authority, that he is everything he said he is. He can do everything he said he can do. And so we're going to jump back into to Matthew chapter 11. When we left off a few weeks ago, Matthew 10 was one of the second of five pillars of teaching where Jesus has sent the twelve. And anytime one of those pillars of teaching ends, Matthew always connects it with a transitional statement, which is verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. So Jesus has finished this teaching. Now that teaching pillar is over, Matthew's transitioning back into another narrative section of the book. And in verse 2, he says, John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Now remember the big picture. What's the big picture? Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus has established that he possesses possesses authority. So John in the middle of this, John knew all of this, but John's beginning, beginning to question it. He says, he sends his disciples and he says, hey, are, are you the guy? Like, are, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or, or should we keep looking? Now, John was a, a prominent figure in scripture. John was a cousin of Jesus, but he was also a prophet. In fact, he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Now you go, well, if he's an Old Testament prophet, what's he doing in the book of Matthew, which is the New Testament? John the Baptist was the prophetic link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was the link between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He's come to to announce and declare and prepare the way for Jesus to show up, to live, to die, to be buried, to rise again, to declare victory over sin and death, to establish a new covenant. And John is that, that last link. He was the forerunner sent ahead of Jesus. And his message was really simple. John's message was this, repent of your sins, turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, it's John who baptized him. If you know that story, John baptizes Jesus. He doesn't want to because he says, I'm not even worthy to to untie your sandal. I'm not even worthy to do what the lowest of the lowest of servants would do. I'm not even worthy of that. So he goes and he he baptizes Jesus. And when he comes up out of the water, it says the heavens open. So like the clouds, uh, the clouds part, the voice of God, the father speaks and says to John and anyone listening, this is my beloved son, and him I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes down and, and lands on Jesus. And so John is there to witness this incredibly powerful moment, this declaration that God is making that says, this is the guy, this is the Messiah, this is the, this is the promised one. And John was the first one to openly and boldly declare that Jesus was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. John was the first one to say, this is the guy that we've been waiting for. But some time has passed, and we don't know all that's happened, but now all of a sudden, John's kind of having this crisis of belief. John, who is a man of great faith, begins to to question. He begins to ask the question, did I get it right? 
Like, Jesus, are you the guy? All along, I, I thought you were, but, but I'm having some questions. Are you the guy? And if anyone know, and if anyone, and if anyone believed, it would have been John. But yet in the middle of that, John's experiencing doubt. And I think for all of us, doubt is something we can relate to. I mean, we, we all experience it. We doubt simple things like, you know, you put directions to something in your, your phone and then you're driving and you're like, man, are, are we sure this is right? Like, and so we'll doubt simple things like that. We doubt our abilities. Like, I remember when we had Kendall. Kendall's my oldest daughter. She's 18 now. And I remember when I held her for the first time, there's this wave of, of emotion rushed over me. Like, I, I looked at her and I was like, I, I knew that I loved you before you were born, and now I'm going to love you for your entire life. And then just this rush of, of powerful uh, emotion. But then there was also this rush of doubt. Like, am I going to be a good dad? Kind of late to be having that conversation with yourself. <laughs> am I going to be a good dad? I looked down at her, and I was like, oh, man, she's so pretty. And then I started to doubt that. I'm like, maybe she's not. Like, how, how do you know? Like, I mean, all of us as parents, we think our kids are cute, and everyone else is like, and who's going to tell them? You know, she's a sweet baby, but she's not, she's not cute. But I'm telling you, Kendall was a beautiful baby. She was a pretty baby. Am I right? Yeah, she was a beautiful baby. Our other two, whatever. But, um, but Kendall was a beautiful baby. But I, I, I had these doubts. And for every one of us, we experience doubt in life. Like, you'll doubt your calling. At times as a pastor, when I've walked through difficult seasons, I've asked the question, like, man, I'm a, God, am I really called to do this? Am I really capable of doing what it is that you've placed in front of me? Am, am I smart enough? Am I qualified? Am I capable? Doubt is something we all experience. We all relate to it. Doubt is simply to be uncertain or hesitant about something. It's, it's to question something. Now, let me hit pause for a second because I want to make sure you understand the distinction between doubt and unbelief. John is not experiencing unbelief. John is experiencing doubt. Doubt is a matter of the mind. Doubt is questioning what you believe to be true. Unbelief is a determined refusal to believe. Like, I'm just not going to believe. Doubt is a matter of the mind where we doubt what we believe. We don't understand what God is doing or why he is allowing what he is allowing. And with a lack of information and with a limited perspective, we question or we doubt. Unbelief is different. Unbelief is a matter of the will. It is a refusal to believe. It doesn't matter what evidence is presented. It's not an open-ended or an open-hearted pursuit of truth. It's you've already made up your mind and you've already determined no matter what you say or do, you're not going to convince me to believe that. You're not going to convince me that what I'm feeling uh, is, is wrong. There's nothing you can do to, to, to refute it. It's like the uh, the memes, the change my mind memes. Have you ever seen those? Like a guy sitting at a table and he's got his arms folded or sometimes he's got a cup of coffee and the bottom it says change my mind and then there's just some me this meme generator where you can put your own, you can put your own like statement in there. Like I saw one that said uh, milk is really just cereal sauce, like spaghetti sauce, but it's cereal sauce, change my mind. Or um, one that I actually agree with, I saw this one recently, that pants should cost half as, or shorts should cost half as much as pants. Like, I think that's true. So but it changed my mind. But the, but the point is, I already know what I believe. You're not going to change my mind. And I mean, he's sitting there at the table like, good luck trying to change my mind. That's unbelief. Unbelief says, I've already made up my mind. I've already decided that I'm not going to believe this. John is not in prison going, 
you are not the Messiah and it doesn't matter what you say, I'm not gonna believe it. He's over here going, I believe this to be true, but there's some things that are happening, some circumstances that are changing that are making me question, is it possible that you're not the guy that I believe you are to be? There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Now, I will tell you this, unbelief, or excuse me, doubt that is left unaddressed will oftentimes lead to unbelief. And you watch it happen in the lives of people around you, people who are following Jesus, and they're experiencing doubt, but they're not talking about it, they're not addressing it, they're doing nothing with it, and then eventually one day they just stop following Jesus, and you go, what in the world happened? In many instances, it was a crisis of belief. It was a level of doubt that went unaddressed, and, and doubt oftentimes left unaddressed will lead us to unbelief. So John is not experiencing unbelief. He's experiencing doubt. And now put yourself in his position for a second. John's a guy in the wilderness openly declaring that Jesus is the guy. He's pointing people to Jesus. He's telling his own disciples to go follow Jesus. It's like a, it's like a, like a, a pastor in the community telling all of the people at his church to go to another church because, man, that guy's where it's at. And John's doing that. Like all of his followers, he's like, don't follow me. Follow him. Follow, follow Jesus. And now all of a sudden, he's thrown into prison. And he's put in prison for doing what was right. He told Herod that it was wrong for him to steal his brother's wife and marry her. And so John confronted Herod and said, Herod, like, I don't care who you are, that's not okay. And so he's thrown in jail. And he's suffering in prison for doing what is right. He believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is preaching the kingdom is at hand. He's embracing that Jesus is the Christ, the king, the one who was sent to rule over Israel. And he knows if that's true, when Jesus' kingdom is established, the prisoners are gonna be set free. John knows, man, when, when, G, when they embrace him as the king, I'm gonna be freed from prison, I'm gonna rule with him, and we're all gonna live happily ever after. But the problem is John is beginning to hear disturbing reports from Galilee that Jesus' kingdom offer was not met with acceptance. In fact, the religious leaders were actively opposing Jesus. They were persuading the crowds to reject Jesus' claims. And so now John is starting to second-guess his conclusions. Like, did I get it right? Maybe Jesus isn't the guy after all. Maybe Jesus isn't the, the Christ. And so he sends word to Jesus. He says, man, Jesus, are, are you the guy that I believe you are to be? Are you the guy that you said you are? Or do we need to keep looking? There's this cloud of doubt that's hanging over John and hanging over the nation as it's clear that they're not going to receive and establish Jesus as king. They're rejecting him as king. Now, rejection of the Messiah wasn't completely unexpected. You've got numerous messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about he would be rejected. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, it says he was, speaking of Jesus, was despised and rejected a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. It goes on and talks about him suffering for us. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. He was pierced for our rebellion, bruised for our iniquities. Like it, there, there are uh, prophecies that talked about the, this servant would be rejected, that this servant would, would suffer. But the problem is those are not the only messianic prophecies. There are messianic prophecies that talked about the conquering king, that the Messiah would be this conquering king. If you look at Psalm 2, Zechariah 14, all over the Old Testament, 
you've got these prophecies. And so there was, there was this crisis of belief among the rabbis as they're, starting to, as they're studying the scriptures concerning the Messiah, and they notice like there's this two-sided nature of these prophecies. And so they're asking the question, is he going to suffer and die, or is he going to rule and reign? Is he the Lamb of God, or is he the Lion of, of Judah? Because in their minds, they said, there's no way one guy can accomplish the same thing. It's like, because some of these, it's, it's like, man, some of these, it feels like Mr. Rogers, and then some of them feels like Rambo. Like, how is the same guy going to accomplish the, this, as one guy going to co- accomplish both of these things? And so the rabbis determined that there must be two promised ones that were going to come. There would be two different people that would fulfill the messianic prophecies. One they called the son of Joseph. So Joseph is the story back in Genesis. He's sold by his brothers into slavery, experienced a lot of injustice, a lot of suffering. And so the first part of the fulfillment of this prophecy, they, they would refer to as the prophet or the suffering servant. One that would come in humility. He would suffer for the sins of the people. And then there would be a second one that they referred to as the son of David. This is the one that would rule and reign, the conquering king. He comes with judgment, meeting out the penalty to the enemies of Israel. And so John, who was a rabbi, would have known of that teaching. And John likely would have, would have embraced at least at some level that teaching as well. So for him, there was always this, this tension of man is, is it, Jesus is the king, but is it possible that Jesus is just simply the prophet, the suffering servant, and that, in fact, the, the teaching among the, the, rab, the rabbinical community that there were two different guys that were coming, like, maybe that's true. And he's starting to doubt. And so he asked Jesus, Jesus, are, are you the king? Like, are you the Christ? Or do we need to keep looking? Like maybe John's thoughts were, maybe you're the, the suffering servant, but all this time I thought you were the Christ. So he sends word to Jesus, and how do you think Jesus would respond? Jesus could have said, uh, bro, you saw the dove, the whole clouds opening, God speaking from heaven. Like, like you were there, you saw that. John, I'm sorry you're in jail, but if you read Matthew 10, I promised you that you would experience suffering for following me, so it kind of comes with the territory. John, don't question the authority of the king. Could have said to him, John, after all that you've, all that you we've done, all that you've experienced, all that you've seen and heard, how could you possibly ask that question? That's not what he does. In verse four, it says, Jesus told them, Go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. What does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't say, hey, I don't owe you an explanation. Now he graciously sends word back to John, and what he says to John, essentially, is he says, John, you got it right. I am the Christ. And the evidence is all around you. He says, I'm not just telling you I'm the king. I've established that I possess the authority of the king. We learn that in Matthew 8 and 9. 
And he quotes two messianic prophecies from Isaiah, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. And when he's quoting them, bear in mind, Jesus and John were both rabbis. These were trained, uh, trained biblical leaders. So they knew the prophecies. They knew all of the, the things pointing forward to the Messiah. They were well-versed in this. And so Jesus knew that John was well-versed in this. And so when he sends word back to him, he quotes two different sections of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is a book that, that's written, it's, it's, almost like, uh, it's, it's almost like two different books. In fact, a lot of, at least some scholars believe that it was written by two different people because there's no way the same guy would have written, written the entire book the way it's written. It's, it's different. One, the first 40 chapters focuses a lot on judgment, and then the, the last 26 chapters focuses a lot on comfort. So some uh, scholars have called the first 40 chapters the book of judgment, and then the second part, they've called it the, the book of comfort. Jesus picks a prophecy from the book of judgment and a prophecy from the book of comfort, and he lumps them together. And he says to John, John, you got it right. Like, John, I am the guy. I am the prophet, the suffering servant. I'm the conquering king. I'm all of it. Jesus is sending word back to John saying, it's not two different people. It's one person fulfilling both parts of those prophecies. I am the guy you are right to believe what you believed. And it seems like Jesus intentionally and strategically sends his cousin to passages that he would have well known. He says, John, I'm the embodiment of both the suffering servant and the conquering king. I am the prophet and I am the Christ. All of the things the suffering servant would do, all of the things the conquering king will do, I'm all of it. He says to John, John, in spite of your doubt, believe. It may not look like it now, but you got it right. I'm everything you believed I was the day you saw the heavens open up and the spirit descend like a dove. You know, for you and I today, the same is true. Jesus is He's the guy. He's the Messiah. He's the conquering king. He's everything he said he was. He can do everything he says he can do. And in spite of our doubt, he is our truth. And we all experience doubt. You know, oftentimes it comes in waves, kind of like what happened with John. Like, you've got to think that John's circumstances contributed to his doubt. If John wasn't in prison, if the nation wasn't rejecting Jesus as king, do you think John would have been doubting? Absolutely not. Why? Because it was working out exactly the way he thought it was going to work out. I mean, isn't that, isn't that what happens in our lives? Man, when God's doing everything the way I want him to do or everything the way I expect him to do it, I don't ever doubt. Man, when, when life is good, God is good. But when all of a sudden things don't work out the way I want them to work out, all of a sudden I begin to doubt. And doubt is not necessarily a bad thing. I think doubt is something we all experience. I think it's something at times we're afraid of, and we don't have to be afraid of it. Because God's not afraid of your doubt. He's not afraid of my doubt. And we experience a change in our circumstances that cause us to doubt. When things don't turn out the way we expect, we doubt. 
when we're healthy, we don't really doubt. Hey, God, he's the great physician. But when the tests result come back positive and you've been given six months to live, is he still the great physician? When we're the ones getting laid off, when someone else is getting laid off, we're talking, man, just trust God. God is good. When you're the one that's getting your last paycheck in, in two weeks, don't, don't you start to doubt a little bit? He's going to provide. Jehovah Jireh. I sure hope he provides when that last paycheck shows up. We start to doubt. When our loved one dies, when it's our spouse that walks away, we doubt. When times are good, God is good. But when times are bad, God is still good. When our expectations aren't met, we doubt. And so what are we supposed to do with it? Well, I think we do exactly what John did. The first thing John did was he acknowledged it. I mean, John, like, man, the, the, one of the, the greatest people in the Bible, after all the things he said, you don't think there were moments where he's like, man, I'm kind of like embarrassed to vocalize this, all the stuff I said out in the wilderness and fighting with the Pharisees and you know, all, all of that whole scene and my, the faith that I displayed and now I'm asking a question, I'm expressing doubt. Like, for sure he wrestled with that, but he acknowledged his doubt. We gotta acknowledge ours as well. They are there, so we've gotta own them. And when it comes to doubt, unfortunately, we've been made to feel as if it's not spiritual to doubt. You ever sat in a, a, a small group or somewhere with a bunch of, of Christians and someone expresses doubt? I was with a group one time and this guy raised his hand and he's like, yeah, guys, he's like, I'm starting to question whether or not God even exists. You just feel the air sucked out of the room as everyone's like, oh my gosh. Get a Bible verse, a C.S. Lewis quote, get him something, give it to him and tell him never speak of that again. Like we, we, we've convinced ourselves that it's, that it's unspiritual. Well, if it's unspiritual to doubt, what does that say about John the Baptist? Like, like we've got to acknowledge them. We've got to be okay with them. Because we think it's inferior or unspiritual to, do, to, to doubt, we do things like we try to avoid them, we defer them, or, or we fear them altogether. And what we need to do is acknowledge them. Because doubt is like pain. Doubt is a, a warning that something isn't right. It's a call to action, it's a call to attention. If you guys have seen uh, my wife, Jen, hobbling around uh, today with the boot on, I did not do anything to her, I promise you. Um, but she broke her foot, broke a bone in her foot. They actually think it was like two and a half years ago. And uh, went through some treatment back then, but it wasn't properly diagnosed. And so did some things and it kind of got better. But then about four months ago, um, we were out on a run together and uh, she said, hey, I need to stop. I'm going to walk back to the car. You just finish, and I'll, I'll uh, see you when you get done. And so for the, the last four months, we've been trying to figure out what is going on with that foot. But you know what's the, the call to action for that? was pain. Like, like, like there's an awareness that something is not right. This shouldn't feel this way. This shouldn't hurt this bad. Uh, I shouldn't be in excruciating pain every time I try to run, you know, 50 steps. And so pain was an indicator that something wasn't right and that something needed to be addressed. And that's what doubt is. 
Doubt is screaming at us saying, hey, there's something in our hearts that isn't right, something that needs to be addressed, something that needs to be confronted. Don't just ignore, don't just do, do what you do with physical pain. I watch people all the time, they just kind of gut their way through life, man, like I'm, I'm tough enough, I don't, I don't need to see a doctor, I don't need to, to do anything about this pain. I'll just never run or exercise for the rest of my life because when I do, it hurts. Rather than trying to figure out what's causing it, we just simply try to go through life and, and just sort of be tough enough to, to carry it through life with us, and that's what we do with doubt. And as I said before, doubt that isn't addressed oftentimes is gonna lead to unbelief. So you've gotta acknowledge your doubt, and then like James, we've gotta confront it. Or John. John didn't, didn't uh, shy away from it. He didn't ignore it. He confronted it head on. He sought answers with a heart to understand. Robert Weston said, cherish your doubts, for doubt is the handmaiden of truth. Doubt is the servant of discovery. She is the key unto the door of knowledge. An open-hearted pursuit oftentimes will lead you to truth. Now listen, not necessarily the truth you want. There's seasons of doubt in my life that I've leaned into and pressed into and God showed me something, but a lot of times, oftentimes, it's not what I wanted to see. But it was always what I needed to see. An open-hearted pursuit will lead you to the truth. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you'll find me. God is bigger than our doubts. God is not threatened by our doubts. In fact, he already knows they're there. You know, the only person you and I are, are attempting to fool is ourselves and maybe the people around us. God is well aware of the areas of doubt that exist within our, our hearts and in our souls. You know, I love what, what Jesus said about John after this encounter. So after this encounter with, with John's disciples, he sends them back and the crowds are there. So this whole crowd of people witness this, this whole scene. And in verse 10, this is what Jesus said about John after the encounter. He says, John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth of all who have ever lived None is greater than John the Baptist. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom Jesus came to establish, is greater than he is. Of all the people who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. It's not like Jesus said that and then John's disciples show up and Jesus is like, hey, for, take that, Matthew, don't write that down. After this encounter with John's disciples confronting John's doubt, Jesus still says about John, there's none greater than, than him. I'll give you a little bit of an idea of what Jesus thought about John's doubt. He didn't condemn him. He wasn't offended by it. He embraced what John was feeling, and then he responded to him. And as we confront our doubts, that's what he's going to do in our lives. We confront our doubts by looking at his word, asking him to reveal himself. What I pray often is, God, show me in a way that I'll understand. I don't care about what that person over there, how they receive. You know how I receive from you. Show me in a way that I'll understand. 
and then talking it out with others. Having a group of people that you trust, that you can press into doubt, not be judged, but be loved through it. So we've got to acknowledge them, we've got to confront them, and then uh, what Jesus challenged John to do is to cling to what he saw and heard, cling to what he experienced. I love what Jesus said to John. He says, what have you seen and heard? Tell John what you've seen and heard. The greatest response to doubt is evident. Where is the irrefutable evidence of the presence of God in my life? Where is the irrefutable evidence of the presence of God in yours? Standing in line this past week, we took our kids to Bush Gardens and a lot of conversations about the safety of the roller coasters. They'd never been on roller coasters before. And, you know, so we're looking at these roller coasters and, you know, is, is that, that thing really safe? Like, how does that thing stay on the track? Like, it's moving so fast, it's so high. But you stand in an hour-long line and you watch that thing go round and round and round. You see it, you hear it, there's evidence. And then you get on that roller coaster for yourself and you experience it. And man, you get off the roller coaster at the end and you know it's safe because you've just experienced it. Where in your life have you experienced the goodness of God? I challenge you to do something. I challenge you to write it down. Because when difficult things happen, the way we're wired is, is we focus on all of the, the negative things. God's allowed a few things to happen in my life that I don't like, that I don't think are fair, that I don't understand. It's causing me to doubt. And maybe the best thing you can do is just spend some time sitting and going, yes, these things are not what I would have liked. But where's the evidence of the goodness of God that's all over my life? David said, taste and see, the Lord is good. Experience it. When I doubt, I have to set my mind and focus on the things that I've experienced, things that I've seen and heard, the places the moments where God's shown up in my life. At times he's shown up even through other people. There are times in my life, you may not even know it, but there are times in my life where God has shown up in my life in the form of you. And where is his presence? Where's the evidence of the goodness of God in your life. Because in seasons of doubts, doubt, that's what you've got to cling to. So Father, this morning, we know that you are good. And the evidence of, of who you are is, is, is all over our lives. It's our families.
our relationships, our, our health, the favor that you've shown us. So this morning in this moment, we just stop. In the middle of seasons that cause us doubt, we just say thank you. That you show up. That you care. That you're with us. Right now, I pray over any doubt in this room. God, I don't pray that you would just remove the doubt because I think the doubt is there because it needs to be addressed. I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the courage to lean into it, to press into it, knowing that you, God, are bigger than our doubts. And as the man, Jesus, you healed the man's son and you said to him, do you believe I can heal him? And he said, Yes, I do, but help me where I doubt. Help us where we doubt. To confront it, to use it to become every day more and more like you, Jesus. For it's in your name that we pray it.